All right. Well, we come this morning to um, a new section in Revelation that's going to occupy our time together for some weeks, about seven weeks, actually, as we make our way through the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. We'll take a break about halfway through for Christmas, and then we'll come back and, Lord willing, finish them up in January in the new year. But this is a um, familiar uh, couple of chapters of Revelation for most of us. We've read these letters or heard about these letters. And as I've been rereading them the, the past several weeks, I've just been struck again how relevant they are. <laughs> um, when Jesus is writing to the, the seven churches here in Asia Minor and giving them instruction, we need to remember, just as we learned a couple of weeks ago, that the number seven in Revelation is a sign of um, completion or perfection so in this case, the reason that these seven churches are written to is not just because they're real churches, they are, but they're also representative churches. The, the struggles that these churches have are the struggles that all churches have to various degrees. And they are issues of, that are, are of permanent relevance to the entire church age, to the entire age between Christ's first and second coming. The triumphs, the failures, the struggles, the pros, the cons, the good things, the bad things that are present in these seven churches are triumphs, failures, struggles, and problems and good things that are in every church to some degree. One commentator said that these are a mini catalog of things that we expect to find in other churches throughout history. So the problems are symptomatic and the solutions are enduring. So as we dive in, I don't want you to just think historically here. I want you to think presently. I want you to not just think about these churches. I want you to think about our church and all of Christ's churches and be praying these sorts of things that Jesus desires for all of his churches, not only for our church, but for the church in the United States and the church around the world and the churches in Kentucky and the churches in Davis County. These are the things that Christ would address us about if he were here with us this morning, and he is, because he's going to speak to us from his ever, never-changing, enduring word. So we're going to come to the first church this morning, the church at Ephesus, as Larry mentioned, a church that we are familiar with because Paul wrote to them. Acts chapter 20, he gives a, a detailed speech that he gave to them. He had a great affection for this church, and Jesus has a great affection for this church as well. But this morning, we're going to consider as we make our way through these seven churches, we're going to consider seven dangers. Each church giving us a unique danger that we need to be aware of and that we need to be praying and fighting against as we labor together as a body of Christ as well. So the particular danger we're going to consider this morning that's kind of captured in the church of Ephesus is loveless orthodoxy. The fact that we can have great heads and great hands but bad hearts or at least incomplete hearts. So let's talk about the danger of loveless orthodoxy this morning through the example of the Ephesian church. First of all, we're going to look at the praise for the Ephesian church. Jesus, as any good pastor or leader uh, does, always starts off with the good things. We never want to move into, when we have something to say to somebody, you never just want to say, you know what, I want to give you a piece of my mind and just chew them up and spit them out. No, we always start with good things. Think about even Paul in his, in his writing to the church at Corinth, which was by far one of the most difficult, 
unhealthy churches in the New Testament, nevertheless, Paul begins with, I thank my God every time I pray for you, every time I think about you. And this was a church filled with unjust lawsuits and sexual immorality and drunkenness and all sorts of things, and yet Paul understood that First of all, you start with the good things that God is doing. And so Jesus does the same, and he recognizes the the legitimate praise that should be given for the Ephesian Christians. He begins, first of all, he points out three, three words of praise for them. First of all, they were diligent. They were a diligent church. They were busy in service. Look at verse two. Jesus says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. When so many professing Christians in our day and age treat the church like a religious club full of goods and services that they'll partake of when they feel like it, the Ephesian churches and the members there of the Ephesian church worked hard. They didn't treat the the church like consumers do, goods and services. They weren't apathetic. They weren't uninvolved. They worked hard. And it wasn't just work. It was hard work. In fact, the word that's translated toil, when Jesus says, I know your toil, that is working to the point of exhaustion. That's how you feel after a 12-hour day, and your feet are killing you, and your back is hurting, and you just want to go home and take a nap. That was normal life for the Ephesian Christians. They worked hard. They were not lazy in the Lord. They obeyed Romans 12 that said, you are to literally boil in the Spirit and serve the Lord. You are to be intensely passionate about your love for and service to the Lord Jesus Christ. They were spending themselves in arduous labor. They were active. They were fully engaged. They were occupied. They were diligent. They were conscientious. Every member of that church was doing something for Christ. They were quick to volunteer. They served faithfully over many years in the same role. They cared for children in the nursery. They taught Sunday school. They had Sunday school back then. They cooked meals for hospitality. They gave money to poor Christians in their midst and churches in their area. They attended services and prayer meetings. They tithed faithfully. They raised their children in a Christian home. They discipled others. They worked hard at their jobs. They stayed faithful in their marriages. This was a diligent church, and Jesus recognized it. Second, He said they were discerning. Look again at verse 2. He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. They were discerning. They were biblically-minded people. They understood that there's false teaching out there that we need to test against the Bible to make sure it's true. They were orthodox in their understanding of the Christian faith. They believed what the Bible said. Now, this discernment showed up in two ways. First of all, they were uncompromising with the world. Look at verse 6. Jesus said, You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, we're not told here who the Nicolaitans are or what they do. We do get a little bit more information about them in chapter 2, in verses 14 and 15 and 20 and 21. So we're going to save some more deep dive into the teaching of the Nicolaitans for down the road in a couple of weeks when we come to those sections. But for right now, you just need to know that the, the term Nicolaitan comes from two Greek words. We know one of them because we wear it on our shoes. 
Nike, right? You guys know Nike means victory in Greek, right? That's why we... So Nike is victory, Nico, Nico is victory, and then Laetans has to do with people, laos. So it's victory over people. So the, 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 the term has the idea of overpowering people, exercising, and in this case, unhealthy influence over people. Now, the Nicolaitans, as we'll find out down the road in, in later letters here that Jesus gives, were evidently a pretty licentious and antinomian, which means they didn't seek to obey Jesus. And they advocated kind of an unhealthy compromise with the paganism and idolatry that was present all over the Ephesian community in the city of Ephesus. And Christians can kind of participate in that pagan temple activity and yet still be Christians. And a a lot of paganism in, in Ephesus was also mixed in with sexual immorality. And so they were like, look, it's just the body. It's not the soul. It doesn't have anything to really do with the soul. And so this kind of teaching was was cropping up in the churches. And these Ephesians would have none of that. They were firmly resistant to those who might profess a belief in Jesus, but whose lives did not match up with it, who might have been outwardly religious, but who were inwardly sinful. Now, we're not talking about repentant people who have momentarily lapsed into sin and come back to Jesus. We're talking about hard and unrepentant people, and these Ephesian Christians were not going to partake of that kind of stuff. They were willing to stand against the way the culture was advocating especially in terms of sexual immorality, and they were not going to buy it. Second, they were unwavering with the truth. Notice this, and again in verse 2, you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. Somebody would come into the Ephesian church and say, hey, I'm an apostle of the Lord Jesus. They would say, prove it. And they'd give them a theology exam. They would say, who's Jesus? And you better answer the biblical one. And they would test whether or not what that person was teaching was in accord with the Bible. Now, Paul warned the church at Ephesus of this when he was alive. He said in Acts chapter 20 that after he departs, that fierce wolves are going to come in among them and try to take the flock away. They're going to teach strange things and try to lead the people away. And how did they respond? They listened to Paul and they obeyed what he said. They weren't just knee-jerk reactions. They only rejected these teachers after testing them. So they would listen to what they have to say, and then they'd be like the Bereans, and they would test to see if these things were so according to Scripture. If someone came to them saying, I believe in Jesus, their first question would be, which one? The biblical one or the one that you have invented to suit your sinful passions? They could sniff out error They valued teaching and preaching that was sound and biblical. They were not afraid to point out when teaching was veering from Christ and the gospel. They couldn't tolerate any kind of shadiness or lack of doctrinal clarity. They hated evil, period. No ifs, ands, or buts. Whatever form evil took, whether it was ethical or doctrinal, it was opposed by the Ephesian church. No compromise, no cutting corners. These were Bible people. Sam Storm says, no heretical concept could ever raise its ugly head in Ephesus without being decapitated by a swift stroke of biblical truth from one of the members. (laughs) 
Ephesus understood that faithfulness to Christ can, is never expressed by being tolerant of wickedness or false teaching. Whether it be a matter of what someone claims to believe or whether the, how they behave. That faithfulness to Christ means that we are unwavering with the truth and uncompromising with the world. For this they were commended, and they should be commended. They were diligent in their service to Jesus, and they were discerning about the beliefs and behaviors of people who claim to follow him, being uncompromising with the world and unwavering with the truth. This church would go to, mat for the, go to the mat for the truth. Greg Wills, a professor and pastor I read this week, gave an inspiring example of one Presbyterian pastor of a, old century, of a former century who would likely have pastored the first Presbyterian church of Ephesus. He would have fit right in. I would like to think they were Baptist, but we'll go ahead and give our Presbyterian brothers their place. Here's what Greg Wills reports about Pastor Benjamin Morgan Palmer, the pastor of New Orleans First Presbyterian Church. Listen to what happened in his congregation. He intended, this is Pastor Benjamin Morgan Palmer of New Orleans First Presbyterian, intended to announce the suspension of a member in their congregation for unrepentant drunkenness. But the offender, that is the person who was getting ready to be suspended from his membership, warned Pastor Palmer to desist. He said he would arm himself and take seat in the gallery over the pulpit, and if you attempt to read that paper, I'm going to shoot you. Now, that's one reason the guy should have been disciplined, right? <laughs> if he's threatened to kill the pastor, uh, probably not a great example of faithful churchmanship. But notice what Palmer did. Palmer unruffled read the suspension without incident, even though the guy was sitting up there in the gallery. Now, this guy would have fit right in with the Ephesian Christians. They would have been like, yes, courage, commitment to Christ, to his ways. Not only were they discerning and not only were they diligent, finally they were determined. They were determined. Look at verse 3. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. That is a huge commendation. The word perseverance literally means to remain under for a long period of time. This is not a grim resignation, but a noble courage that readily accepted suffering, loss, and persecution. It was an invincible attitude in the church that eagerly persisted in the face of opposition. They kept on going through difficulties, hardships, disappointments, and setbacks, even though those hardships, disappointments, and setbacks were met with more disappointment and hardship and setback. They kept going. They were tough. They didn't throw in the towel on Jesus. They pressed on. They remained faithful. They did it with the right motives, too. Do you see that in verse 3? I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. They're doing it for Jesus. They're not doing it just because they think it, that's what good Christians do. They're doing it because that's what they saw in Jesus, and they're trying to imitate him. They're doing all this for Jesus. These are the conscientious, doctrinally sound, evangelical churches of their day. We would be in fellowship with the church at Ephesus. We would join with them wholeheartedly. They believe the Bible. They follow Christ. They're willing to suffer for him. These are our people. They'd be a member of RBNet. <laughs> and rightly so. But there was a problem. 
in the midst of all that praise for their discernment, for their diligence, for their determination, Jesus has one thing against them. Look at verse 4. But I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love you had at first. They had forsaken their first love. Now, we're not told whether this is first in time or first in priority. What I mean by that is, is, is he saying you've lost the love that you had at the beginning of your Christian life or you've lost the love that is most important, namely the love for Jesus? He isn't as important anymore. Everything else is. There's something in their life that's more important than the love of Jesus. Well, probably both of those things are true. I've heard one person say, tell me what you think about, talk about, and are excited about, and I'll tell you what you love. Now, what love is being referred to here? Is it love for Jesus, or is it love for Christians, or is it love for lost people, or is it just love in general? Because we're not told, right? He just says you've forsaken your first love, or you left the love you had at first. Tom Schreiner says, and I agree with him, abandoning one's first love means both love of God and love of fellow believers, since they both go together. You can't have one without the other, right? No one can say, according to 1 John chapter 4, I love God, and yet not love their brother, right? So this is a love that shows up in the same way. If we love God, we love his people, and if we love God's people, we love God. One commentator said, where love for God wanes, love for man diminishes, and where love for man is soured, love for God denigrates into religious formalism. Now, interestingly, as Larry pointed out for us at the beginning during his scripture reading, Paul addressed their love for each other in the letter to the Ephesians. Right right at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 1, he says, "I, I know that you love each other. And then in chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, of of Ephesians, he prays that their love would be strengthened for each other. But interestingly, at the end of the letter, Paul talks about another love. The last verse of Ephesians, Ephesians 6.24, is grace upon all those who love the Lord Jesus with love incorruptible. So Paul was concerned not only that the Ephesian church love each other well, but that they also ultimately love Jesus. Now, I think this love also speaks of not just love for Christ and love for the brothers and sisters in the church, but also love for lost people. G.K. Beale says, the Ephesian church had lost their passion for the gospel. Their focus was on maintaining the inward purity of the church. They were good at keeping the world out of the church, but they were not good at being the church in the world, end quote. So they hated what Jesus hates. They just didn't love who Jesus loves, or at least not the way they should have. Jesus said this would happen. He said that as lawlessness increases, Matthew 24, 12 through 14, the love of many will grow cold. The Ephesian culture was lawless, and it did all those long battles all that discernment, all that diligence, all that determination had needled away at their love, love, their loving heart, their loving heart for Christ or their loving heart for their, their fellow church members or their loving heart for the community in which God had placed them. 
Remember the story of Mary and Martha in Luke chapter 10, verses 36 through 42, how this can happen to all of us. We get busy for the Lord. We get involved in the work of the Lord that we begin to drift from the Lord of the work. I think that's what's happening. The Ephesian church has a Martha mentality. They're diligent. They're working. They're after it. But their heart's getting a little cold in the process. Paul was concerned about this too. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 and 3, he talks about that his goal for the, the Corinthian church was that they would be married to Christ, that they would have a pure and simple devotion to him. Like a, like a pure virgin married to their spouse, that they would just love Jesus. That was his goal for them. He also said in 1 Corinthians 13 that we can be doing lots of stuff. We can be giving our bodies to be burned and yet have not love. Right? You can be doing all the right things and even be doing them for the right reasons, but still your heart is not engaged as it should be. It's worth noting that only the first and the seventh letter in Revelation 2 and 3, the first letter and the last letter, does Jesus threaten a church with actual destruction? And in both cases, it's because of a lack of fervent love for him. That is the one thing that Jesus will unchurch a church for, is if there's no heart for Christ in the church. Apparently, the Ephesian church had led a noble concern for true doctrine, make it overly critical and unloving, unwilling to minister to people the love of Christ. It's easy to let doctrinal concern devolve into a critical spirit that thinks it has found falsehood everywhere and is unconcerned with the relational needs of the people around us. We must guard the truth, yes, but we must continue to love others and help meet all their needs, not just their need for faithful biblical instruction. I think that's something of what's happening in the church at Ephesus. Now listen, according to Jesus, this is something, brothers and sisters, that we must be aware of at HBC and vi be vigilant to pray for and guard against. Orthodoxy, perseverance, suffering, resistance to false teaching are no preservative to love. In fact, when not animated by the Holy Spirit and fueled by worship and obedience, those things can actually serve to calcify a church. Doctrine is necessary, but doctrine can be dangerous. The rigorous study of Scripture turned the Pharisees into walking coffins. It can do the same for us. Listen to me. If you repeatedly... Leave your Bible unread or re read it without application or listen to sermons or read books or study scripture or attend classes without applying the truth, you are in danger of losing your first love. When was the last time you applied something from the scriptures? From a sermon, from a class, from a book, from a... When was the last time you said... Jesus is speaking that to me, I'm going to do it. That's how you keep your first love, is by doing what the scriptures say. The more you endure and the more faithful to biblical clarity we are, 
the more cold we can become if that clarity and that passion is not leading us to Jesus himself. Right? Remember John chapter 5? Jesus says, you diligently study the scriptures, and yet these are the scriptures that testify about me, and yet you refuse to come to me. See, we begin treating doctrine as a thing. We begin treating church as a thing. We begin begin treating Christianity as a thing. It's not a thing. It's a person. This whole thing is for relationship. This whole thing is to lead us to God, to bring us to God, to keep us near God, to help us love God, to follow God, to obey God. It's what all this is for. Studying Scripture, keeping a sound membership role, bearing up under difficult trials can make us worse Christians if love is not animating it. What's scary here, this is the scariest thing that struck me as I was reading this letter again. Look at, look at verse 3. I just want to see what, what, what is maybe the, the... And it still puzzles me. Look at verse 3. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. But I have this against you, verse 4. You've abandoned the love you had at first. That, that baffles me. How can you be doing things for the glory of Christ and lack love for Christ? You can. You can. Our flesh, our sin, brothers and sisters, messes with us and can make us all backwards. But I want you to be reminded of something. Jesus wants this church, and he wants our church to love him. (laughs) He doesn't have this long list. You got to do this, 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 you got to do this. He cares about all that stuff, but what he cares most is if you want to be with him, you enjoy being with him, you like sitting down with him, fellowshipping with him, talking to him, you like loving your brothers and sisters in Christ, you like loving other people. That's the big thing, right? This is not new to us. This is the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's, that's is it. And what Jesus wants these people and us this morning to have love for him No, because he sees, he looks, he says, I know your works. I know what you're doing, Ephesians, and you're going to burn out eventually. You can only keep going on a half tank for so long. I mean, you're diligent, you're discerning, you're determined, you're working hard. I'm seeing all that, but I'm seeing in five years, you're going to quit. Because it's going to get harder. But if you don't love me, All this service for me is going to become drudgery eventually. We need to pray that the Lord would give us a love for him like the love that Jacob had for Rachel. Remember Jacob serving Laban for Rachel? He thought he was going to serve serve him for seven years. He ended up serving for 14. But what does Genesis 29-20 say about Jacob? That for Jacob, those years seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. May that be said of us for Christ. It just seemed like a few days because of the love that I had for him. So it is in our service to Christ. The endurance of suffering is hard and bitter if it's not softened and sweetened by Christ's love. It's one thing to grit our teeth in obedience and clench our fists in emotionless commitment, and it's quite another to smile in the face of adversity because the light of Christ's love is burning so deeply in our hearts.
Orthodoxy is cold and dead and grim without the warmth and life and beauty of Christ's love. I don't want to sit in another fellowship where that's the case. Dead orthodoxy. They got it all right and don't care about Christ. I'm done with that. I'm done with that. And that doesn't mean we chuck the orthodoxy to the side. The orthodoxy is not the problem. <laughs> we don't say, oh, see, that just proves it. What people need is, we need, we need relationship, not doctrine. Don't do that. Don't be a Nicolaitan. We don't say that, see, the problem's doctrine. No, it isn't. The doctrine is never the problem. The people are the problem. The heart is the problem. It's not the doctrine. We need more doctrine, not less. But we need to make sure that that doctrine is being handled in a way that leads us into relationship to and obedience to Jesus and love for Jesus. To hate error and evil is not the same thing as to love Jesus Christ. Jim, Jim Hamilton, professor at Southern Seminary and pastor in Louisville, says, What is it that happens to people between the wedding day, so joyous, so earnest, so sincere, and the day the, day the divorce papers are signed? What happens to parents between the day the child is born and the day they complain about that bothersome, frustrating brat? What happens to us when the day a loved one is diagnosed with some awful condition and the day that loved one whom we cherish becomes a burden? In each case, divorced spouses, frustrated parents, burdened family members, what happens is a loss of first love. The church at Ephesus was persistent and orthodox, but a hardness, a callousness had arisen in their hearts, and they needed a renewed fervency, a renewed tenderness for the Lord and for one another, because true orthodoxy is always, always warm, always loving, and always generous in spirit thankful that our pastor Ted modeled that so well for us all his years. As we're honoring pastors, I think he did that well. He was a warm, orthodox person, and we do well to follow in his footsteps. Now let's conclude here with the last two points a little bit quicker. Number three, the path for the Ephesian church, the path of the Ephesian church. So Jesus doesn't just leave them there. Aren't you thankful? <laughs> Jesus doesn't say, here are the good things. Here's the one bad thing. Fix it. <laughs> Sometimes we can do that at work, right? We'll walk in and we'll just say, okay, that looks good, I fix that. And we just walk out and go back to the office or back to what we're doing. And there's a place for that. But Jesus doesn't do that with these letters. He gives them motivation and he gives them a clear path back. Because he knows, he, does, he doesn't want to abandon this church. He wants them to be recovered and brought back. And I think it's important to point out what isn't being offered here. He doesn't say... Stop doing all those things I praised you for. They were the problem. <laughs> he doesn't say, stop going to church. Stop attending prayer meetings. Stop being so diligent. Stop serving. Stop being so discerning about the Bible. He doesn't say any of that. He says, add something to it. Add this. Don't leave this off in your pursuit of those things. He's not telling them to be theologically lax. He's not telling them to be more tolerant of error. He's not telling them to be more indifferent towards the truth. He's not telling them to stop being all those things I praised you for. He's telling them three things. Remember, re repent, and redirect. Remember, repent, and redirect. First of all, remember. He says in verse 5, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Remember the former fervor. 
and let that memory stir in your heart the devotion for Christ and to one another. Do you ever think back to the first days of your new life in Christ? You ever just revisit those times? I have a, I have a book, and I have, I have several books that impacted me. I have photo albums of the days when I was a new Christian back in college, and oftentimes when I'm feeling cold and dead, I just open up that photo album and start flipping through it, and the memories come flooding back. And I think about times with the Lord, and I think about what he was doing in my life in those days. And lo and behold, I start to love him. I start, there, tears will come to my eyes sometimes. I'll start to just sing an old song that will remind me of a song, and I'll just sing that song again. Or it will remind me, oh, I remember that scripture, and I'll turn back to it, and I'll reread that passage. I know, I know we do that. But we need to do that more often. We need to remember the glorious heights of our newfound freedom from sin. Do you remember what that was like when you were forgiven for the first time? Remember what that felt like? Remember the joy of the Lord and the gratefulness that you experienced? You might have not been super emotional about it, but you can remember, I feel like a new person, because you were a new person. You remember your love for God's people and how you loved going to church and you loved hearing the Bible and you loved taking opportunities to read it or hear it preached? You remember the Spirit working in your life and giving you a transformed heart and mind and seeing things in the Bible you never saw before? You remembered the unprecedented comfort that came, that knowing that you were headed for heaven, that nothing was going to snatch you out of Jesus' hands? Jesus loves us deeply, brothers and sisters, and he wants us to recall those times. He wants us to go revisit the engagement. He wants us to revisit the photo albums. He wants us to go back to those times where the Lord was first working in our lives. And he wants us to, to, to help, help us lead those, those things to lead us away and away from sin and back to him. Now, I'm reminded of a few words in Jeremiah. Let me share these with you. Jeremiah chapter 2. Listen to what God spoke to the Israelites. He said, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem... Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? said, we loved each other so intensely. What did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? I never stopped loving you, but you drifted from me. He said, I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits. This is Jeremiah 2, and it's good, good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods, but my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So we need to remember the former fervor and let that memory stir our hearts again. Second, we need to repent. Jesus says again in verse 5, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent. That is, repent of your cold-hearted disregard for Christ. Labor, brothers and sisters, is no substitute for love. 
Purity is no substitute for passion, and deeds are no substitute for devotion. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change in behavior. We need to be open to the Lord's correcting influence in our lives. We need to pray, search me, O God. Know my heart. If there's any offensive way in me, root it out. Lead me in the way everlasting. Listen, brothers and sisters, we are all prone to overestimate our spiritual condition because we judge it by the wrong standards. We look at the outward sins we're not committing. We look at the faithful, diligent service that we're rendering for Jesus. We look at the theological accuracy we have, and we think we're in good shape. That's all. The Lord had no problem with us at all. But we need to be open, having our eyes and our ears and our hearts open to Jesus, to ask Jesus, who truly knows us, to speak to us as a church and as individual followers of Christ, to show us our blind spots. Jesus, show me if I'm fooling myself. And he will. And thirdly, we need to redirect to doing those things we did when we were first converted. Look at what he says. Remember verse 5, therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Go back to those things. Break. Here's, how, here's what some of us need to do in this room. Not all of us. I don't know where all of us are. But some of us need to break the cycle of mechanical service to Jesus. You need to do something this week that you did when you were first saved. You've got to just break that mechanical, monotonous, week in, week out thing you got going with the Lord right now. That is not what the Lord wants. We need to maybe reestablish some new habits of loving devotion that have fallen off. Maybe they fell off a decade ago. Maybe three decades ago. And the Lord's saying, you remember that thing you used to do? Maybe he's bringing it to your mind right now. You remember that thing you used to do? Go back to that. Go back to that. Start that again. What did you do when you were first saved? Do it again. Do it again. Did you share the gospel recklessly when you were first saved? Do it again. Do it again. Did you pray like crazy when you were first saved? Do it again. Did you go to church every time the doors were open when you were first saved? Do it again. Read your Bible with new eyes. Get discipled. Disciple somebody. Fast. Get away. Spend some time in unrestrained personal worship. Share the gospel recklessly. Listen, brothers and sisters, if we don't evangelize, we fossilize. There is a need to not let Christianity merely be a system to be followed, but a person to be loved. We do this when all of our work is flowing out of worship. So let's bring communion. You know, here's just a simple thing. Just bring the Lord back into everything. You know, you could think, well, yeah, I'm, I used to pray on the way to work, but that hadn't happened recently. I used to pray on the way home. That's not happening. I used to pray with the family in the evenings. That's not happening. I used to pray with my wife or my husband in the morning. That's not really been happening. I used to, whatever the used to was, start it again. Start it again. Think back and ask the Lord, Lord, is there something that I've, been, that I've done in my life in the past that kept me close to you that I have not been doing recently? And if he brings that to your mind, do it. Do it. Engage in it again. Let, that, let your heart be renewed and softened. I think about Hosea 14. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, 
for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you your words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will say no more our God to the work of our hands. In you the orphan finds mercy. And then God says, I'll heal their apostasy. I'll love them freely, for my anger is turned from them. <laughs> That's what we need. That's what we need. Now, in conclusion, point number four, the promise to the Ephesian church. God was in a bit of a loveless marriage with the church at Ephesus, and he wanted it to be rekindled. Jesus would say to the church at Ephesus, you've been by my side for so long, but you don't look in my eyes anymore. We've been walking side by side for years, but you don't look at me like you used to. You don't talk to me from your heart. You spend all your time doing more things, but you've lost interest in me. You agree with my ideas, Jesus says, but you don't kiss me anymore. I reach out my hand, you don't grab and hold it. The Ephesians had lost the love affair. The romance with God was gone. Now, just a pastoral word for the introspective, okay? because I know some of us can be that way, because I can be that way too. Jesus is not saying that if your love for him is not always boiling hot, you're not a Christian. <laughs> this was, these were Christians, okay? These are clearly Christians, okay? Think about marriage. That's what he's talking about. Don't let the drift set in. Don't just start doing things for one another but never really taking time to sit across the table and just hold hands and say, I love you. So let me give you a practical application. Don't let your service for Jesus, study of Jesus, or sacrifice for Jesus undermine your relationship with Jesus. Don't let your service for Jesus, study of Jesus, or sacrifice following Jesus undermine your relationship with Jesus. Rather, let it lead more deeply into relationship with him. Now, Here's the promises he gives. First of all, he gives a warning. Look at verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who overcomes or conquers, that is, to the one who obeys this instruction and follows me, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. He says, your failure or your obedience to this will ensure your safe arrival in heaven. Now, is he saying they could lose their salvation? No. God gives warning to Christians about falling away to keep Christians from falling away. That's how the logic of the Bible works. There are passages in the Bible like this that cause some people to conclude, well, Christians can lose their salvation. But don't miss the context. This passage is not written to Christians who are thriving in their faith to say, oh, one day you might fall away. No, these passages are written to Christians who are wavering in their faith in some way, and God is saying to them, to you, to me, to us, that when we are wavering, don't fall away. Listen to me and come back. And it's that listening to him and coming back that ensures that we're his. Not that we drift, but that when we drift, we come back. Okay? So drifting is not a sign that you're not a Christian. Not coming back is. This kind of warning keeps us from falling away, doesn't it? 
When Jesus says, look, I want you to be with me in the paradise of God. I want you to eat of that tree of life. Remember back in the garden when it was banned? It's going to be opened up again. I'm going to dwell with you in paradise. Don't give in or give up. You'll enjoy eternal life with me. Now, where do we get this from? Where do we get this love? I want you to look at verse 1, the one verse we skipped over, (laughs) kind of on purpose. Brothers and sisters, you get a greater love for Christ by meditating upon his greater love for you. Look at verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. See, this is where we get the love. He holds us in his hands and he walks among us as his people. There's a sovereign authority here, but there's a tender nearness here. And we need both. We need both. Our Christian lives will be imbalanced if we we just say, oh, I don't want to hear the hard things Jesus says. I only want to listen to the nice things. It will be imbalanced. But we'll also be imbalanced if we say, oh, Jesus, just give me more hard words. Just tell me the hard stuff. No, we need both. We need toughness and tenderness. Every parent knows that. We need both. The lordship of Christ over his people and the intimate presence of Christ among his people. His lordship demands that we listen and his tenderness makes us want to. Doesn't it? It's this twin combination that makes obedience possible and desirable. Think about Matthew 28, the Great Commission. It's buttressed with both. Go, make disciples of all nations. How? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And I'm with you, always, even to the end of the age. See, it's his, it's his tough, it's his sovereignty and his strength that encourages us to go, and it's also his tenderness and walking with us and being by our side that encourages us to go. The move from has to holds and from stands to walks is designed to highlight both the sovereignty of Christ over the church and his loving presence and unfailing ministry within it. He holds or grasps us because we belong to him. We, he owns us. He has redeemed us by his blood. And no time, no, at no time does the church slip from the grasp of Christ or elude his gaze or operate without his authority. As difficult as, as the Christian life can sometimes be, Christ never ceases to be the sovereign. And as disillusioning as human behavior can be, it never ceases to remain the body of Christ. So, Jesus says, here's the way that this will come. Think about the future, think about what's coming, and think about the reality that I'm with you now. And it's that that will soften us. So I conclude with John Stott's pastoral word. He says, the cross is the blazing fire at which the flame of our love is kindled, but we have to get near enough to it for its sparks to fall on us. So where does does love come from? The cross. But we got to get close enough to it so that its sparks will fall on us. Well, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you deal with us in such a redemptive manner. We are so grateful that you come to us, yes, to confront, but also to comfort. We are so grateful that you know us thoroughly Lord, you know all the things about our lives individually and about us as a church. 
You know our works and our ways. All our ways are known to you. Hallelujah. They are known to you. And Lord Jesus, would you have anything to say to us this morning? Would you have anything to say to us that you spoke to the church at Ephesus long ago? Lord, sadly, there remains no viable church in Ephesus these days. And Lord, perhaps the reason for that is they didn't heed the warning in this letter. But Lord, we pray that you would have mercy on us and that you would draw our hearts afresh back to you. May, you, may we rekindle and do the things that we did at first. May we get back to what the Christian life was at the beginning, that basic, simple, pure, undivided devotion to Jesus that occupied and break off all the barnacles that have, that have gathered over the years on the boats of our soul that have just, that bog us down, slow us down, and Lord, refresh and renew us this day. We ask for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.